I guess of the uh, several 20-year spans of my life, the past 20 years went by the fastest and probably contained the most abrupt change in the fabric of my world and probably the fabric of all of our world. Just remembering the day itself is um, difficult because it seems so long ago. A time when you still have uh, a child at home. He was in eighth grade, our youngest. Just the routine of how life changes when your kids grow up and go away, the routine of your house and everything. It's hard for me to even remember that routine now. But on the West Coast, it was just past six, and I was thinking of waking up. Nellie had already woken up, and usually when she woke up, she'd turn the radio on, where Lee usually would listen to a station out of San Francisco. And by that time, we pictured it as a private plane. You know, and, and of all the uh, watching of documentaries and tributes and everything that I've done this week, and I've spent hours doing it this week, um, they all said almost the same thing. When you first heard the news, if you didn't see it, when you first heard it, what we pictured is what we would like to picture. Never good that a plane would fly into a building, so we would try to make it an accident and try to make it as small a plane as possible. So she went into the bathroom to shower, and I decided to get up and go to the kitchen. I turned on, we had a little counter TV, this little nine-inch TV that was a whole lot easier to just turn on in the kitchen, and I did, and the Today Show came on, and that, as soon as you saw it, even without HD, as soon as you saw it, you knew that was no small plane. The amount of smoke, the amount of damage, and when they would zoom in and you'd see that horrible scar, you know, within that building, you, you knew this was not a small plane. I didn't have anybody to tell quite yet because nobody knew exactly what had happened, and I'm just sitting there watching, and as with other people, as I'm watching, the second plane. And there was an immediate kind of turnover then. We didn't need a lot of news then. Now all we, needed, all we knew was that this was intentional. This is no accident. But of course, we didn't know anything else by that time. So I guess one thing is, is that being caught between a couple of generations, one thing 9-11 did for us was it gave us that moment to give us at least one moment in our lifetime that we knew exactly what we were doing, we knew exactly what we were thinking uh, when we saw it, when it happened. The Kennedy assassination was not quite 40 years before. And everyone says that that was the event for them, for you know, a generation before. Just a couple years before that, the Cuban Missile Crisis and being taken to the brink of World War III. My dad talks about that all the time. But here it was. It was on this land. It was on our shores. But you know, as, as I was writing this down, I remember that it still wasn't entirely new, was it? Terror had been on these shores before. It hadn't been five years since Oklahoma City. Heck, this wasn't even the first time that the World Trade Center had had a terrorist attack on it. That had been about eight years. But this was different. I'm not naive to say that they were all the same. I'm not naive to say that why does this one get the attention that it gets? This was bigger. There was a wider media gaze. There was a, a, a more immediate reaction to it. You know, some things actually have gotten a little better since then. One of the things was, was that it was a reminder that this nation could, what? Come together. It was proof that in times of great stress, we could come together. But also, there's an awareness 20 years as I write that of the relativity and the superficiality of that phrase. 
because we didn't all come together following those days, did we? In the days following that. And if you think that we all came together, then you need to speak to somebody who was old enough of Middle Eastern descent trying to live and navigate in this country in the days after 9-11. We didn't all come together. And to prove it wasn't necessarily about Middle Eastern descent, our oldest son called us about a week later with his longer hair and his full beard and his brown skin. And he got a taste in his own country of what it felt like not to be together with everyone else. So much that it scared him that he needed to get in the car and lock the door. That was here in the valley. I think some things have gotten better and I think that some things that did get better were at least the awareness or the widening of language and the room for discussion that we could have about certain things. You know, before 9-11, PTSD was something that only happened to soldiers. And after 9-11, we figured out that PTSD can be applicable to all kinds of trauma. First responders, victims, survivors, those even who just saw it. A wider discussion. But for the most part, modern historians hit on what is most obvious, that even in the devotional for our offering, didn't they say, Mike? Even in that is, for the most part, it changed us probably not for the better. We've become more fearful. We've become more distrustful. 9-11 was the first time that conspiracy theory met the internet on a huge scale, a much larger scale than had ever been given the stage before. Distrust of the government and other institutions grew after this, because of our longest war, how we reacted to 9-11. 20 years ago, I think I made a mistake on Sabbath, September 15th, 2001. I decided on Wednesday, the next day, as I, I I don't know about y'all, but did you have a hard time going on with your day that week? I didn't quite have a job that would uh, let me just take the week off, but probably we all should have, shouldn't we? But what I found myself doing is I found myself coming down to the church and being in there completely alone and just looking around the church and asking, what in the world do I say on Sabbath? Do we talk about it? What am I gonna say in a sermon that's gonna make anybody feel any better? So even looking back on it now, I have to admit that that was about ego, wasn't it? I wanted to help, and I didn't see that preaching was going to help. So you know what I decided to do is I decided to move on in the series. I didn't even mention 9-11 in the sermon that day. And I have to tell you 20 years later, I can't tell you what the series was. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you that nobody listening that day can remember what the series was. We dedicated most of our prayers that day to the events, the people that, that were affected most. But I just preached on. It's kind of an Adventist attitude, isn't it? When it comes to uh, what we're going to say about what may be or what may not be going on outside, sometimes the Adventist attitude is just shut up and preach. Just shut up and preach the gospel, pastor. Right? If I'm not mistaken, Mike, the, that Manhattan church, what I couldn't get out of my head that Wednesday as I was trying to figure out what to do on my church on the West Coast that were thousands of miles away from anything that we could do, include, include help, what I couldn't get out of my head was that by Sabbath morning that Manhattan church had lost contact with their head elder who worked in Tower One. And they were actually worshiping that Sabbath morning knowing or 
pretty sure knowing that their head elder was killed. So this week, I never thought that the date would be part of the sermon title. This week, my instinct was to move on. I wanted to start a new series. And then, of course, I looked at the calendar and was reminded, just a big 11 flashing at you. And the more that I tried to work on moving on, it just didn't work. I just stared at my notes. I couldn't find a thread. I couldn't do anything. So I assume I was being told something, that maybe I could rectify a mistake that I made 20 years ago and talk about things that are actually on our mind rather than something that I just hope is on our mind. So I hope by taking time for a little examination, then maybe next week, maybe next month, we see what we might move on to. See, because the thing is, is that here, 19 years later, we've been hit with something that probably has changed the fabric of us even more than 9-11 even could imagine that it would, right? So we're like living through the, uh, still living through the effects of 20 years later, we get hit with a pandemic that we haven't seen in 102 years. So I don't know. I don't know if next week we'll move on. I don't even know what to move on to. But I do know we're here today. I do know we've been invited into God's presence today. And I know he has a message for us. I was thinking of this quote and it just came to me this morning and I realized how long it had been since I uh, had even thought of the quote, which is unusual for a Seventh-day Adventist because this quote is one of those things that's just kind of burned into our DNA. We're probably not even sure where to find it because we haven't had to find it in ages because we haven't memorized. Never had to find it. But Ellen White says this, he says, we have nothing to fear for the future except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and his teaching in our past history. Y'all could recite it with me, couldn't you? A lot of you. A lot of us old people here today. It first appeared in the General Conference Daily Bulletin in January of 1893, it found its way into Selected Messages, Volume 3, and probably that's where we know it from. We have how much to fear for the future? Nothing, except if we what? If we forget, not forget the past, but forget God's leading in the past. You know, sometimes the only reason you know that God has led in the past is because we're still here after the past. And we can even contemplate that there is a future. God's mercy lives with our past, even if we didn't live our past as we should have. Here we are. Here we are. Our prophetic heritage should be not guessing about what the future holds. Our prophetic heritage should be about history. Right? It should be an honest, fearless history, though, all of it, looking back at it and examining all of it. In recovery, we are encouraged and we get to a point to where we write a fearless moral inventory, where we look at our past to try to figure out what may be going wrong now. And it needs to be fearless, it needs to be honest, it needs to be authentic. Because if we don't address the past honestly, then we can't face the future with any certainty. By the way, when did Jesus say that you would know <laughs> the fulfillment of prophecy? After it's fulfilled. After it's fulfilled. He said, I say these things to you now so that after it's fulfilled, you may remember that I said it, and you then can what? Believe. As prophetic people, we don't need to be guessing about what might happen in the future. All we have to do is examine our past and remember how God has led us in the past. 
So in our recent study history, Jesus dropped something on, a, on his first disciples that to me was a bombshell. This was one of those moments in our study of the Gospel of John that just hit me. It was an absolute bombshell. Jesus said, so you have pain now. You have pain now. Has there ever been a time to where all the disciples of Christ could never ever claim that they're without pain? We all have it, don't we? We have it now. We had it 20 years ago. We've had it even more the past 22 months. Now you have pain, but I will what? I'll see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. You want joy after your pain, Jesus says? How about this? How about this? How about I give you some joy right now? He said, you'll have joy when I come back, but how about you have some joy right now? Don't be sad that I'm going away because the love of the Father won't go away when I go away because the Father still loves you. The Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world again. I'm leaving the world and I'm going to the Father. To me, that was a bombshell to be dropped on the disciples because that was something that they weren't 100% sure of. They didn't have a lot of evidence in their life that the Father loved them, did they? The way that they read their history the church of the day telling them that God wasn't real thrilled with them because they were poor or they were working or they were sick or they were sinners. If you believe that I love you, he said, well, I came from the Father. The Father's always loved you. Always. When we studied this, it took us on this beautiful complex mystery of the Trinity. To even, to even utter some of the words that we uttered in our study, that they are at once, that God is at once three and one. He's not sometimes three, sometimes one. He's not sometimes two, sometimes one, one plus two. At once. He is three and one. The same way that the Son is both Father and and son, son of God, and son of man. While their roles seem to be separated, Jesus says that no matter how much it appears that it could be separated. See, again, he's taking something that's eternal, co-eternal actually, three co-eternal persons, and he's trying to project them then on, a, uh, on two planes, if you will. By the way, uh, that's uh, what Bev and I used to, used to do. We took a three-dimensional image and had to put it on a two-dimensional film. So sometimes it doesn't always work, does it? Which, by the way, we, we, when you're asking, you know, uh, why did you guys always take two views of everything? Well, it's because of that. That's a three-dimensional wrist we're putting on a two-dimensional film. Got to take this one, got to take that one. With me? The Trinity is taking three, beyond three dimensions, four dimensions, five dimensions, the limitless uh, dimension, and trying to stick it into these uh, idiotic two-dimensional brains. The only reason why that the uh, roles of the Trinity have to be broken up is because we can't go past the law of physics. <laughs> we can't describe two things at one time. Which, by the way, it was another way that God conceded for us, condescended for us, became three so that we could maybe, just maybe, understand him a little bit better. So Jesus said it may appear, you guys may even study us separately. <laughs> you can write a book on the Father, you can write a book on the Son, you can write a book on the Holy Spirit, right? You may even study us separately. But I will tell you, Jesus says, there's one thing where we never ever separate and that is our love for each other and our love for you. That is the one place where we are completely unified. 
three is one. The Father himself loves you. The Spirit is the proof of that love. He loves you so much that he longs to dwell within you. He wants nothing in between you and him, including your puny understanding of the Trinity. So what do we know as we look back to our history? What do we know as we look back to our history with God and with each other? And hopefully to try to make sense of our current history and maybe our future. I take us to the Sermon on the Mount. Philip Yancey tells us in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, the subtitle of the Sermon on the Mount could be not survival of the fittest, but triumph of the victim. Oh, how happy are those who... That's literally what it says when it says, blessed are those. Congratulations, this is a most honorable state to be in. And you're thinking, yeah, it would be an honorable state to be in. Rich, powerful? No, no. Poor, mourning, meek, humble, hungering, and thirsting. Jesus said, when you're those, you are blessed. How fortunate are the unfortunate we are reminded. When faced with the most difficult time to try to live out love on this planet of war, when we think it's so clear that something besides love is called for, then we remember Jesus taught us what it comes to before we act on an impulse to lash out. Before we act on an impulse to do something unloving. Because after being told that you're blessed if you're poor and you're meek and you're hungry and you're thirsting, he said this, blessed are the what? Blessed are the merciful. Why? Because they will what? They will receive mercy. Mercy is only used as an adjective twice in the entire New Testament. Here, and also in Hebrews 2.17, when describing none other than Jesus himself. Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. In his mercy, he became one of us so that he could truly atone for us. The only time that it's used as a description is blessed are the merciful So, the only time that it's used as a description, it applies to himself, and then it also applies to who? To anybody listening to the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, blessed are the merciful. So the only time it ever applies to anybody besides Jesus, it's to you and me, who claim to be his followers. Luke even even gives us another reason. I didn't put it up there, I'm sorry. Luke says in his version of the Sermon on the Mount, be merciful just as your father is merciful. So the one time, if you want to be like Jesus, the one thing you're going to have to be is what? Is merciful. Is merciful. And I can't count how many times that that's the line that I won't cross. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like you so much. Okay, Greg, have mercy on somebody. Ah. Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 22. She tells us, Ellen White says, God is himself the source of all mercy. His name is merciful and gracious. His name is merciful and gracious, according to Exodus 34, verse 6. He does not treat us according to our deserts. He does not ask if we are worthy of his love, but he pours upon us the riches of his love to make us worthy. He's not vindictive. He seeks not to punish, but to redeem. Page 22. And you have to ask, so where would that come from? Where does that that mercy come from? She pours it on. The heart of man by nature, cold and dark and unloving. Whenever one manifests a spirit of mercy and forgiveness, he does it not of himself, but through the influence of the divine spirit moving upon his heart. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 9. 
Page 21, thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. It's simple. If we're not merciful or feeling merciful, and I hate to say this out loud, I really do, we're refusing God's presence in our lives. We believe that God will manifest himself in our lives, do we not? If you want it manifested, it's manifested in our ability to have mercy. On who? See, that's another thing he didn't do, did he? He didn't discern who. All I know is that he gave it to me, and I'm not worthy. So it means that it, it goes to anybody who is not what? Worthy. Anybody here worthy of the mercy of God? I was hoping a bunch of you would raise your hand because then I wouldn't have to show mercy to you. With me? He didn't say be temperate, be faithful stewards. He didn't even say be Sabbath keepers as your heavenly father is. He said be what? Merciful. She doesn't let up on it. The merciful are partakers of the divine nature. And in them the compassionate love of God finds expression. All whose hearts are in sympathy with the heart of infinite love will seek to reclaim and not to condemn. Christ dwelling in the soul is a spring that never runs dry. Page 22, same book. The merciful are those who manifest compassion in the poor, the suffering, and the oppressed. Sounds a little like what? The poor, the suffering, the oppressed? Sounds a little something like some people are calling social justice, but here we are 2,000 years later even debating whether or not the church should be involved in social justice. And then Jesus pours it on. Blessed then, he says, oops, I'm sorry, I didn't. There, <laughs> sorry, I was going backwards. Jesus pours it on then. Blessed are the what? Blessed are the peacemakers. Notice what it says. Peace what? Makers, not peacekeepers, not passive, but what? Active. Jesus' whole mission was peace. Mike prayed for peace for us today that we haven't found in 20 years. And I don't know where we're gonna find it. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you uh, and, and uh, evil against you falsely on my account. He basically says that if you're going to take it in the teeth for Jesus, if you're going to take it in the teeth uh, showing mercy, then congratulations. You're taking it in the teeth for the right reason. Only proactive disciples can have this happen to them. When you stand up for what is right in a world that calls right wrong, then someone is going to take note of it and they're not going to be happy. And I think out of all the things that has plagued us for 20 years is that the extreme horror of 9-11 has translated into extremes for all of us left in its wake. We live now in this era of extremes, extreme uh, abuse, extreme reply, right? I say something, you say something, I say something. Social justice all of a sudden becomes socialism. Stand for peace and you have to be unpatriotic. Stand for, to fight and you have to be a warmonger. Wear a mask, get vaccinated. You're fearful, not faithful. 
march to protest or take a knee, call attention to an injustice, and you're simply un-American. So, for any of us trying to navigate this, we, we, we grasp, we grasp for mercy, we grasp for opportunities to be merciful. And it's exhausting, isn't it? I'm exhausted. I know you are too. To constantly wonder what do we believe that contributes or hopefully detracts from this way of dealing with uncertainty and anxiety. Because that's all this is. It's the world trying to deal with this uncertainty and anxiety. And when we are uncertain and anxious, we'll grab hold of anything that will make us feel secure, even if it means being unmerciful. You with me? So what do we believe about the character of God? You know, where does it take us, especially living in a time like this? Three days after the attack, a testimony was published in in an online Christian blog about a survivor of Tower Two. It's a harrowing testimony. I'm sure you've heard it. His office was on a floor that was directly hit. He says he saw the plane out the window before it hit. He vividly recalls an engine just a few feet away in what used to be his office on the other side of his desk. He he miraculously, out of all of that, through then the smoke and the burning and and, and the sound because (laughs) the engine was still running. He made it to a stairwell where another worker just happened to call out if anybody was on the floor and the other worker, and they didn't know each other, called out and miraculously they made their way down. They were one of the first people to get out and to be completely clear before the collapse. It's a wonderful testimony until he begins to make it a testimony. When he first published it, I wish he would just stop right there. But he had to go on then to explain why he believed he was saved through the whole ordeal. I'm a believer, he says. I was driving to work, and I don't know why, I cannot explain it why, but I felt urged by God to pray more fervently, to pray harder and longer. When I saw the plane out the window... I then understood that that fervent prayer needed to come out again. So I screamed, Lord, you have to save me. And he concluded the entire testimony, if you will, with this. He said, a jet with all its force and destruction was no match for my God. His little finger was able to divert it to save me. I remember his name, and I've seen him several times. In fact, he and I have become good friends. Because every time I turn on a tribute to 9-11, there he is. And I was wondering in the the newest ones, in the brand newest ones, if he was gonna be in there, and, and sure enough, I'm watching the second episode, and there he is. He still tells the story, but he stopped telling the prayer story, which is what I'm thankful for. Because when a testimony comes out like that, I wonder about who's listening. And I wonder about the character of God in that testimony. See, because maybe maybe a surviving family member contacted him after hearing this testimony and asked why my husband, a believer who prayed as you did that morning, couldn't and God could not be bothered to move his other pinky, maybe to save him. My husband prayed as much as you did. He believed as much as you did. God was bothered at least to move his pinky for you. Couldn't he have done it for him? See, it's easy sometimes 
to attribute all the mercy and the good to the Son and then leave what we consider divine retribution to the Father when it's convenient. I'm back now to the character of God. I'm back to Jesus' words echoing, saying, the Father himself, what? Loves you. The oldest heresy in the Christian church goes all the way back to a monk named Arius who looked uh, at all he had was the scriptures and the, and, the, and the difference between the Old Testament stories about God and the New Testament stories about Jesus and to him it was absolutely obvious they couldn't be the same person. And so even Trinitarians, when we're looking when we're looking to juxtapose the love and the mercy of the Son and divine retribution, or what looks to be like divine retribution, we save that for who? We save that for the Father, which is exactly why, exactly why the disciples never believed that it was quite good news to be given into the hands of the Father. Jesus' revelation that the Father himself loves you is revolutionary to them. And 2,000 years later, his church who believes, most of us believe to be Trinitarians, we will gladly begin to separate them when we're looking for someone to be unmerciful to. We keep the wrath of the Father in our back pocket. Right? For stories like this. Jesus reminds us that we can't just separate the Trinity when we see fit. We can't get away from the merciful character of God just because we find a group of people who simply are not worthy of our mercy. Even when we're giving our testimonies, maybe especially when we're giving our testimonies. Because who's listening? They are. They're all listening. I'm reminded that throughout history, the history of the church, from Ephesus to Laodicea in Revelation chapter three, throughout the entire history of the church, the difference in power distribution and dynamic and what it meant to the church's place in history at their time. When you look at the history of the church and you see people uh, willingly being persecuted, by the way, uh, what does it say about people who, who uh, live by the sword? They'll die by the sword. The remnant actually is, is lauded in Revelation because they don't fight back. If you are destined for captivity, then into captivity you will go. So I'm reminded that when they were uh, willing to be imprisoned, when they were willing to, to meet the lions on the floor of the Colosseum, when they were going to crosses and stonings, maybe even boiled in oil for their beliefs, the church grew like it never has. All while being under the thumb of the most oppressive rule in all history, the Roman Empire. But then when the church had the opportunity uh, to acquire the power of that empire for themselves and used it and grew by wealth and by power and by popularity, but inside she was spiritually dead, a woman of great virtue who sold herself to prostitute herself with the fear and the coercion of empire. It is called a beast. You're not worshiping the lamb that was slain anymore. We're worshiping the beast. By the way, that was just the first one. <laughs> beast two, according to Revelation 13, will be even harder to resist. It will be even harder to still be loving and merciful when living under this one. I'm reminded of looking back in biblical times, say, to go back to Egypt and to look at the Exodus. 
And whenever I preach through the exit, if I always ask this question, I always say, have you ever noticed that when human beings create gods for themselves, they're always big boy gods? They're big, they're powerful, they're angry, right? We give them divine power, but we also give them a selfish nature. Big boy gods. Gods that do something about children who will not worship him, right? And I'm reminded that every time, to me, every time when reading even about the Exodus itself, that when God decided to act like one of those big boy gods, that nothing ever happened after that. In other words, people were not converted, were they? Did the plagues convert the Egyptians? Did the plagues convert Pharaoh? No, as a matter of fact, the plagues made his heart what? Harder. For that matter, did the overwhelming force of the Red Sea, the power of turning night into daylight, into air conditioning an entire desert, to get water from the rock, to get manna from heaven, did that convert Israel? Just days after the Red Sea and Sinai, they're dancing around a golden calf. Sometimes we sit and we think, we say, well, God will use that force. He'll use his wrath to convert people who will not believe in him. I think the stories in the Bible tell another story. I think God is saying to us, this doesn't convert anybody. It never has and it never will. To this day, every Jew who partakes of the Seder, the Passover Seder, when you get to the narrative in the Haggadah, when you get to the narrative in the Haggadah of talking about the plagues, you were to put your finger in your glass of wine and you're to sprinkle a drop onto a plate next to it. Every plague, every plague, every plague. Because even today, a Jew cannot exult in the joy of the deliverance of Egypt because there were unbelievers that were killed, even their oppressors. And they will say, my joy is less. My joy that is normally in my cup is diminished because somebody died today. In the Chronicle of Human Suffering, you find no other book like the book of Job the chronicle of human suffering and pain, and the question as to why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? The ultimate question in the book of Job. In chapter nine, after Job has had everything happen to him, by the time you get to chapter nine, uh, not only has he had everything that has happened to him, chronicled, right? the death of his children, the, the depletion of his wealth, uh, the absolute destruction of his health. He's, he's barely hanging on. And also, by the way, for nine chapters, he's had three friends trying to give him comfort by trying to remind him how big of a sinner he is. And that's why God is punishing him. So by chapter nine, somebody who should have absolutely no hope says this in verse 32, for he is not a mortal as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no umpire between us who may lay a hand on us both. The one thing God is wishing is he, God may be doing this to me. In fact, Job believes God is doing this to him. But what God want, what he wants from God is somebody who understands him. He said, there's no way that God can understand what it's like. You don't know what it's like. I wish there was somebody who knew you and knew me. I wish there was somebody who could lay a hand on us both. I wish there was somebody who was a son of God and a son of man. I wish. By chapter 16, he's still asking for one. In verse 21, he says, Oh, that a man might plead with God as a man with his neighbor. Where is this man? Where is this son of man that will plead on behalf of, on behalf of me to God? And then something happens in chapter 19. 
for I know that my Redeemer lives, he says. And that, the, and that at the last, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh, I will see God. In that chapter, all of a sudden, I, what strikes me about this is that in chapter 9, he wishes for it. In chapter 16, he's still wishing for him. But something happens in 19, he now knows that he's there. And I may not see him until after I die even. Job gives a complete working theology of the resurrection. By the way, you should read how nasty it was for Job in the rest of this chapter. When you get a chance, just read Job 19 before you get to verse 25. He blames God entirely and in the same breath says none of it matters because in the end, there'll be a resurrection. Job knows he has a friend in heaven who pleads with God on his behalf. It's incredible. He believes that God does not leave him without a voice. Job's suffering, somehow he knows, is not the final word with God. At the very least, there's a friend of his who can plead with God as one pleads for a friend, a friend of God and a friend of humanity. It perplexes me. Something happens between chapter 9 and 19 that he goes from wishing for him to believing there is one. And the, one thing that I, the only thing I can come up with is that his suffering didn't alleviate. It only got worse. He only comes to this conclusion when there is nothing to alleviate his suffering. See, we often think that if God would just eliminate suffering and pain in this world, then everyone would believe. Job received nothing of this. And the ones who profess to know God are the one that is breaking his heart and making him suffer further. How did Job know? By the way, whenever we discussed how old the story is and when Job probably lived, the only revelation he had of God was the creation and the flood. That's it. Did he conclude that there would be a resurrection just from that? Did he conclude that his pain and his suffering will not be the last and final word? Did also he conclude that maybe I can make it if I know there is a resurrection. Maybe I can make it if there is some hope for me that the character of God says that even through all this, he still loves me. So, there are a lot of things in order for us to be able to move on. Number one, I think we need to always think about what, uh, what picture of the character of God we're putting forward by our lives, by what we say, by what we support and don't support, by what we do and don't do, how we treat other people in the church, out. I think we need to truly, truly change the way we look at pain and suffering in this world and begin to eliminate words like retribution and wrath. And as a church, to be able to come together and maybe not be able to eliminate the pain and the suffering of each other, but at least let each other know that we're not alone. To listen. Listen to other people's suffering. Even if I can't get my mind around it, even if I can't get my head around it, listen. Just to finish off from Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, there are many to whom life is a painful struggle. They feel their deficiencies and are miserable and unbelieving. They think they've got nothing for which to be grateful. Listen to this. Kind words, looks of sympathy, expressions of appreciation, 
would be many to a struggle it would be to many a struggling and lonely one as the cold cup of water to a thirsty soul a word of sympathy and act of kindness would lift burdens that rest heavily upon weary shoulders and every word or deed of unselfish kindness is an expression of the love of Christ for lost humanity she even had to remind us that if we're stuck, smile at somebody. Expression of love, expression of gratitude, a, just a, a kind look. She doesn't even have to remind us that, that give a kind word. She has to remind us that if you can't say something nice, if you can't say something encouraging, if you can't say something edifying, then what? Shut up. There are many to whom life is a painful struggle. They feel their deficiencies. We don't need to point them out. They are miserable and unbelieving. They think they have nothing for which to be grateful. Kind words, looks of sympathy, expressions of appreciation. I guess what I'm saying is that we gotta, if nothing else, we gotta change our echo chamber whatever echo chamber that we're living in that's telling us that we can short circuit or that we can be unmerciful or unkind when it's appropriate in times of emergency. And when actually the past 20 years, when has it not been a time of emergency? What we say, what we do. And if we're having a hard time being merciful, then we spend time with each other. If I'm having a hard time being merciful, I want to hang out with you because I know you are merciful. And I always remember the church has to become that place. The church church has to become a place where we, uh, it's not that nobody's going to hurt, it's that the hurt does not go unnoticed. Right? So here we are. 20 years later. And if we're here for another 20 years, I just hope that we live out our history into our future and that we truly become a place where no one will ever lack the grace of God. So I thank God for allowing us to see this day. I am going to remember those who are no longer with us. I am gonna remember the damage and everything caused. I'm going to praise God for whatever, however you may think about it, for the end of our longest war. I want everybody home, starting with us. So thanks for hanging in there again.